We all talk a lot about ideal clients. Wouldn't it be nice if they were all ideal? Too bad they're not, because let's be honest, those who inquire run the gamut from perfect fits to completely awful. Some clients are dream clients. Other people are good, just not good for you. In this episode of Own Your Business, I'm going to share with you four different buyer types and what motivates each one what you have to change to book more than just your ideal client, and what clues you should pay attention to if you can afford to be more selective about who you work with. Own Your Business is a podcast for event professionals who want to grow with proven approaches. I'm Sam Jacobson, a sales, pricing, and copywriting expert in the wedding industry. Throughout my career, I've booked hundreds of events for millions in revenue. I've also led teams in premium and luxury markets, Now I coach people like you with my company, ID Action Consulting. It's not easy to run a business, especially if it's a business of one, because we aren't born knowing everything. Like you, I had experts who showed me the way when I was starting out and when I was ready to level up. I hope this podcast gives you the confidence to own your business. Many of you know that I sold for a venue and catering, on-site catering for a resort in Washington State for eight years. It was such a fun place to work. First of all, it was gorgeous. It was a historic venue on the coast of San Juan Island in Washington State. Now, San Juan Island, it's where I live now with Katie and our kids, and it's only got 55 square miles. It's a really cool place. You have to take a boat or a plane to get here. There's no bridge or anything. And we're actually closer to Canada, Vancouver Island, than we are to the mainland of the United States. And this venue was incredible. It was the oldest operating hotel in the state of Washington. It was built in 1886. And for the first 70 years, it was actually a lime and cement company before it was bought out by a boating family in 1956 and turned into primarily a boating destination. What's really cool about this property is that it actually has some history with our family too. My parents went on a vacation, I think it was their honeymoon, And they spent some time at the resort, took a photo of the gardens. And I remember that photo on the wall in a frame in our house as early as when I was seven, eight years old. Ironically, after I graduated college in 2001, I had waited tables through college and decided to go up to the resort where my parents now lived on San Juan Island and got a job there. It was really cool because it was 17 years after my dad and my stepmom had gone on vacation and taken that photo. The gardens were stunning, water views, but the accommodations at the resort and some of the spaces, including the venue that I had to sell, was a little bit funky. And that's because there wasn't a lot of interest early on in doing weddings. It w- you know, Weddings were tough. The, the resort was one of the top 10 boating destinations in the entire West Coast and had just built a new marina. And so the cruising crowd was really the bread and butter for the resort. And so when we thought about doing weddings, we thought, wow, they're actually really hard and they can kind of disrupt the normal resort experience for the people who are coming up on vacation. So why not just cater to boaters and leisure travelers? But then in 2007, the financial crisis hit and the Great Recession followed. And we needed weddings to fill hotel rooms because nobody was spending money on regional travel. It was so hard. The decision to do weddings, super easy now. If you wanted to know a little bit more about my background, or maybe you remember, 
I was not just the event sales manager, but I was also the lodging director for the resort. I actually have more experience managing restaurants and hotels than I do selling events. And so I was super incentivized as the lodging director to sell more events because I couldn't meet my my revenue numbers, my top line numbers as the lodging director if we didn't put heads and beds by getting group business to come up. So in that first year, when I was on the job as an events manager, I was doing it all. I was doing the marketing for events, including making sure the website was up to date and filled with content that was going to be interesting to our ideal client. Then when the inquiries would come in, I would do all of the sales work. And that includes not just responding to inquiries and doing phone calls and emails, but when you work at a venue, you got to do a lot of site tours. And those can be an hour to two, sometimes even three hours long. And then closing the deal, of course. Not only the sales work, but I was also responsible for servicing the client. We were only doing 30 events a year. And that meant that There was not enough work for me to do just sales. I had to actually spend time servicing the client. So because we were doing in-house catering, I was spending a lot of time working with the clients on what kind of menus they were going to have and how the layout was going to be and what the service flow was going to look like. And even in my early days, I was actually the event banquet captain because we didn't have a big enough team and it felt like the right thing to do to make sure that the events went well. So I would actually manage the event on site all the way from the beginning of the day, getting things set up until cake cutting and toast. And then I would take off and go home. But over the years, I did less and less work. The first to go was the event management, being at the event itself and making sure things ran smoothly. Then after a little while, I was able to let go of some more duties. I I was able to get the client to pick the menus 90 days out. And then I was able to pass it off to the food and beverage team for the final preparations for the event weekend. Eventually, I got rid of all duties after contract and deposit. And my only responsibility was to get to contract and deposit with that particular client. Now, we tried to have others do the sales work, but revenue always suffered. And the event manager always got burned out doing it all. So over that eight-year period, for the most part, I held on to doing the sales work day in and day out. I could focus on selling, selling, selling as the years went along. And I did. From year one to year eight, we went from 30 events to 100 events in a year. We went from doing less than half a million dollars in catering to almost $2 million in catering sales. And of course, as a lodging director, I was super happy because group room sales went from about 300K to over a million dollars in group room sales. And Not only did we make a lot of money, we also got a lot of accolades. We won the best of awards for top Pacific Northwest destination several years in a row. But with all that success came growing pains. It was hard to grow fast. It put a lot of pressure on the culinary team. And because I was servicing so much over the years, that effort went down. I wasn't spending as much time with the clients. And the F&B team was doing the direct work with the clients after the contract and deposit. I wasn't that picky about who booked Because I didn't have to service them. If they had the budget, I was happy to fill the date with anyone. Now, most of the time, we had great clients. We had three main types that came through the resort. One was somebody who came up and visited the resort as a child on their boat. Another was the kind that stayed at the resort with their families over the years. It had this like dirty dancing feel upstate New York. You go to the the same resort over and over and over again. And the third type was a couple that vacationed at the resort. Maybe they were from Seattle and they came up on a little weekend getaway and fell in love with the property. 
But as we started doing more events, we got more and more what I'd call less than ideal clients on the calendar. And when you go through and you think about what that looks like for numbers, if you're only booking one in 10, you know, say bad client out of a hundred events, that's still 10 bad clients. And if it was two in 10 were bad clients, we're talking about 20 bad clients per year. That's a lot of bad clients. But remember, I didn't have to worry about them personally because somebody else was doing the work and we needed the revenue to hit these lofty sales goals that we had from ownership. And I remember one day, sometime a few years into me not doing the servicing, the food and beverage director, Bill, came to me one day and he said that we were working with an absolutely awful client. And it was the third or fourth so far that year. And we were just getting started. It was still the spring. The catering manager was already at her wit's end. So he and I made a deal. The culinary team, the food and beverage team, would only deal with five challenging clients each year. After that, I had to take care of all the awful ones myself. That meant, in addition to being the lodging director, I had to respond to all the emails again. I had to plan out the menu with them. I had to dial in the floor plan. I had to do all the site inspections, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I had too many other responsibilities for this. I didn't have time to be a part-time catering manager too. Let's just say that the next year, we did not have very many bad clients again because I had to make decisions differently, not only based on revenue, but also on how well they fit personality-wise with our ideal client. And that made things a little bit more challenging on the sales side, but it also made things easier for us on the servicing side. And that was a good trade-off. The last year that I did sales for the events team, we made one of the biggest jumps in bookings and revenue. And in part, it was because I was really focused on profiling the types of personalities that came into our inbox. What kind of couple was I communicating with? Some of what I picked up was based on attending wedding MBA for the first time. Actually, my only time in 2011. I heard, I think it was Suzanne Sutherland talk, and I was knocked over by the concept of segmenting buyers into different profiles. I bought her book. I dug into the insights. And many of them were really good, and I gained a lot of perspective, but not all of the descriptions for her buyer types matched what I was seeing in my inbox and on my site tours. However, the big takeaway was the concept of creating these buyer personas. A few years later, in 2014, when I started working with Laura Moriarty, my executive coach, I found the key to identifying more accurately and the skills needed to profile potential clients. Laura taught me a ton about how to be a better leader and a better colleague when I was working at the resort. But the work we did on stretching to different communication styles was an absolute game changer, not just as a manager or as a peer, but also as a salesperson. I immediately started to apply the approaches that she showed me for managing people to managing potential clients who were inquiring for weddings at the resort. Of all the things you learn about on this podcast, the Own Your Business podcast, my four buyer types is one of the top concepts to take away. It will revolutionize your revenue and it'll make it easier to work with all sorts of people, including those you would normally hate working with or have a hard time working with. The simplest way to explain the transition that I made is by describing the difference between the golden rule and the platinum rule. Everybody's heard of the golden rule. Treat everybody as you would treat yourself. But the platinum rule, I think, is next level. The platinum rule is treat everybody how they want to be treated. Golden rule, treat everybody how you want to be treated. Platinum rule, treat everybody how they want to be treated. 
here's the thing. We tend to attract clients who are like us. That's only natural. And we have the easiest time communicating with them because they're like us. They're wired the same way. We tend to think of them as ideal clients because it's so simple. It's so easy. It's so natural. But what about the people who are different than us? The people who aren't wired the same way? How do we deal with them? Often we just choose not to. We don't book them. Sometimes because we don't want to. And sometimes because we can't connect with them communication-wise. And so we call them flawed clients. But are they really flawed? Or is it more that we just don't understand how to communicate with them, how to connect with them in ways that are easy and important to them? Maybe we just don't understand what matters most. And so this is where the four buyer types come into play. And this is what really transformed my ability to book all sorts of clients and also for our service team to work with all sorts of clients. So let's dig in a little bit to the different buyer types. There are four general kinds of way that people will filter the world. There are relationships with other people, information, action, getting things done, and then ideas and opportunities. So relationships, information, action, and ideas. And we tend to have a dominant filter on how we perceive the world, how we take things in. And we also typically have a secondary filter. Some people can work from all three different ways of seeing the world. And the people who can do all four, I call them unicorns because they're super rare. Here's where it gets interesting though. When you know how a person sees the world, you can predict a ton more. Let's look at just one particular type. So jobs is a big one. One of the things that we want to make sure that we do with all of our clients is understand what do they do day in and day out for work. When you go through and you think about people who are oriented towards relationships with other people, they tend to be in caretaking or people-oriented professions, right? This is one of the four types of filters that people see the world. What kind of jobs do these caretaking or people professions do? Teachers, especially elementary school, nurses, therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists, people in HR, maybe customer service or in account management. These professions are the kind of indicators that you would look for if somebody is going to interact with the world through relationships with other people. Now, these people tend also to volunteer their time or to give the nonprofits. And before they have kids, they bring a fur baby into their world so that they can offer that nurturance that's so important to them. And those pets go everywhere with them. And they're half of their IG posts. Within their friend group, these same people are the ones that make sure everyone feels good about what they're doing together. They want everyone to be happy. Social harmony, group harmony, super important. Oftentimes, they prioritize how others feel. So much so that they push away their own needs to the background to make room for what everybody else wants first. You may see this as a people-pleasing tendency. This is the kind of profile of somebody who is a nurse or an elementary school teacher. And you can look at these general characteristics to likely follow when you dig in a little bit to their background. Now, of course, you're going to want to confirm everything. But if you get an inquiry from a bride-to-be who CCs her mom on the emails, insists on her dog being in the ceremony 
has an Instagram feed that's filled with photos of her and her friends and her sweetie and is looking at dates between mid-June and early August because that's when she's not teaching third grade, well, you know that you probably got the relator buyer type in your inbox. And that's all good and well, but here's where it gets really interesting. When you know that you're working with a relator, you can also predict what will be important to her at the wedding. And this is when it gets really good. We know that she is likely to be interested in hosting the party and being a good host, right? She's a people pleaser. She wants to take care of others. She wants to make everybody feel welcome. She's also interested in getting ready with her besties, her mom and her sisters. That's going to be likely an important part of her wedding day experience. She wants to be that good host and make everybody feel welcome. But she also wants to make sure she's going to get time with just her sweetie, her fiance. So she's going to want probably a first look. She's also going to place a huge amount of importance on who she walks down the aisle with. And the ceremony is really important to her. The readings could be important. The vow exchange in general could be important. In fact, the entire ceremony is a big deal. Another thing that's a big deal at the reception is having a first dance and dances with other people like parents. And one other clue is that she might want a sweetheart table rather than a big head table because she wants to spend some time alone and have that meaningful experience with her fiance. She'll also want a few moments with just her honey throughout the reception just to take it all in, to step back. We know that meaningful moments are driving her desires. And we can see that play out in the things that she puts priorities on throughout the wedding. We also know that she's going to get blindsided by a lot of salespeople, other people who don't know what you know, especially now that you're listening to this particular podcast episode. So when she inquires with other vendors in your vendor category, these vendors are doing what they do for everybody who inquires. And things that are going to be turnoffs for her are going to include too much information, or too many things to do all at once, or vendors who want to move too fast through the sales process. She needs to take her time. And if you don't give her time to involve the other decision makers, it's going to backfire. Remember, she makes group decisions. She wants to make sure everybody feels good about progress forward. One thing that you don't want to do is you don't want to make her sell her fiance on your services. You want to do the selling to the fiance. She also may get overwhelmed with too many options. Another thing that other people might be doing that you don't want to do is expect her to know how it all works. You need to walk her through step by step what it is that she needs to do. And lastly, you don't want to pressure her with hard sales tactics like offer goes away in 72 hours or someone else is looking at your date. She won't respond well to this kind of hard sales tactic. So if that's what you don't want to do, what do you want to do? You're going to have to adjust your sales process. You will have a different sales process for a different buyer type, knowing that they have different needs. So things that you need to do for a relator, you need to connect first. Ask about her fiance. Show interest in her personal life. She wants to be seen and heard by you, and she does not want to be judged. So you can't educate her on things that she doesn't know. You can't come down on decisions that she's made or tell her that she's done something wrong up until this point. You just got to listen and accept. You've also got to slow it down, not just the process, but also the pace of your words and the volume of your voice. Warm, friendly, 
patient. That's what you're trying to communicate. You can even change words that you use. Instead of using the word think, use the word feel. Instead of, I think it would be a great idea, you could say, I feel like it's the right idea. That processes differently for a relator. And you can do that when you talk or when you write in your emails. Also, you want to limit the options that you provide, whether it's times to meet or ways to move forward or the services that she can choose from. Instead, make recommendations. She wants a guide. And you want to do that step-by-step at every intersection in the sales process. Also, make sure that you are involving other decision makers early and directly. It's going to be a group decision with her. And you want to make sure that you're connecting with other people as quickly as possible. When you explain things, don't make her feel dumb. Explain things clearly and warmly. Be patient with her decision-making process. It may take a long period of time to make choices because she's doing a lot of diplomacy in the background. Another thing that you can do, and this is really simple, do video calls or in-person meetings if you can. But those video calls, the eye contact, the face-to-face, there's a lot of connection that occurs there. There are a ton of other things that you want to do in the sales process when you know that you are working with the relator. These things are game changers. Now, you can't set up your sales process focusing on these things that I just described for every kind of buyer type. You could, but you're only going to get yeses for the most part from relators because these are the things that are important to them. The challenge is that when you also want to book dreamers, you have to shift things up. And dreamers are great clients because they typically blow the budget on design and decor. And boss types are other types of buyers that you want to focus on because they usually are in leadership positions or sales positions or, or financial management. They make a lot of money typically with what they do and they like to spend it on celebrating life and big parties like weddings. And then the last buyer type is the analyzer. They don't really care that much about personal connection. All the things that you do for the relator to connect with them personally, that could not just miss but backfire with an analyzer. One last thing to consider is that weddings are amongst the most difficult sales to make because more than one person is involved. So it's not just the primary buyer that you have to think about. You have to think about the other people. In this fictitious situation, the groom may be a boss. Opposites attract. Relators and bosses oftentimes go together. And that over-involved mom, she may be a dreamer. And that dad who's bankrolling this, he could be an analyzer, which means that you have to sell differently to each person who's involved. That's not easy. In fact, it's really complicated. But if you want to convert more inquiries for amazing weddings that fill your portfolio with the kinds of images that attract high-paying clients, you will do best by learning how to sell differently to different kinds of people. The reality is that most wedding pros want more bookings. You worry about not filling your calendar more than you do finding the right kinds of clients. Because that right kind of client who can afford your services is your ideal client. And that's what happened to me at the resort I talked about earlier in this episode. We needed to fill the dates on the calendar to get through the Great Recession. We needed to focus on more than just our ideal client. Obviously, we don't want to go so far that we're bringing in monsters. But we have to work with less than ideal clients too. When we saw the economy approve at the resort and our patience for flawed clients fell thin... We saw a huge increase in demand for our venue because we were getting the notoriety. 
we could afford to be more selective because we were getting a ton of inquiries. We didn't have to say yes to everybody. So if you're in that position, congratulations. You don't need to worry about filling more dates on the books. You want to be more selective with who you work with. You can use buyer type profiles, not necessarily to stretch communication styles so you can book more people, but to filter out the people who won't be good fits. Be on the lookout for clues to which type of couple you're getting an inquiry from so you can pre-qualify them, not on budget, but on personality fit before you waste too much time. I mean, who doesn't want to work with only ideal clients? I know I do. I'm sure you do too. And knowing your buyer types will help you get more of them. Because one of the biggest criteria for how much we like our jobs is spending time around people we love working with. And most of it has to do with the clients who hire you. So be selective if you can. And if you can't, stretch your communication style to match theirs. Over the next few months, I'm going to take a deep dive into all four different buyer types with an individual episode devoted to each. So you're going to know more about how to identify each buyer type, how to modify your sales process around that buyer type to meet those communication preferences, what triggers you need to know about their psychographics, and lastly, how to communicate to make it an easy fit from their perspective. Stay tuned. I know this is going to help your business a ton. Boom. That's it for this episode on Own Your Business. If you've heard me on a stage or a workshop or someone else's podcast, you know I have a hard time keeping it short, but I know you're busy. So thanks for spending time with me today. You have a ton of options for guides when it comes to getting you to where you want to go. I hope you found someone you can continue to trust. If you have a friend who could use practical strategies to own their business, please share this episode with them. If you can't think of anyone in particular, we'd settle for a quick review on whatever podcast platform you listen through. 